Westminster Confession of Faith, does it violate this concept of Christian nationalism? That's a way to think about it. And here's what I mean by Christian nationalism. It was a good question that I received about that last week. And so let me try to answer that. When I talk about Christian nationalism, what I mean is that there is an obligation for a nation's leaders, magistrates, whenever the gospel has been preached and embraced in the land, that the, that the, the leaders of that nation are obligated to as well to accept Christ and to submit themselves to his leadership. It means, so that's what, that's number one, that the nation acknowledged that Jesus Christ is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords without embarrassment. Number two, that none of the laws in the land offend Christ. Now, that doesn't mean they have to flow directly from scripture doesn't mean they have to be verse by verse it doesn't mean you have to say show me the verse but it can't violate scripture it can't offend scripture so those laws that the civil magistrate enact must be in compliance in, in, with scripture in some way or another but it does it, they can't offend Christ and thirdly, that there is an open acknowledgement and protection of the civil magistrate to all legitimate Christian profession. And I think that third one is self-explanatory because you can't be neutral. You, 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 that is, the civil magistrate has an invested interest in the public spreading of the gospel. And we talked about that yet last week, if you remember. When we were going through the Westminster Confession of Faith and, and I spent, I think, the latter part of that time talking about that the civil magistrate has an invested interest in the public becoming and embracing Christianity. That what religion you embrace has an impact upon your culture, okay? We see this war with Western culture. Well, okay, that's one way to understand it. There's this war with Western culture. Well, where did this Western culture, what did, this Western culture didn't flow out of nothing. What created this Western culture? See, that's what we want to get, that's what we want to think about, that's what we want to get our brothers and sisters to think about. Where did this Western culture, these traditions that are being torn down and abandoned, where did they come from? Well, and again, they, they, they basically proceeded out of a long history of Protestantism, Christianity, embracing the concept and idea that God as creator made this world beautiful, things are to be enjoyed. Um, there is, there should be, man should have, uh, you know, these inalienable rights. 
life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's a, these are biblical ideals that men can only be truly, can truly experience and, and possess those things through Christ ultimately. And because that's what teaches. They, so again, that doesn't mean that that's all that the government is to do, but these are the things that are important as I think about Christian nationalism. Many people have adopted the myth that, well, if, if it's Christian nationalism, it means that you're going to be punished for not, believe, not believing in Christ. That's not true. Now, obviously, if you act out in public disobedience and you, you, you go and burn down a church, you're going to be punished for that. But it, Christian nationalism isn't about forced evangelism. That's not what it's about. We, that's, that's Islam. Islam believes in expansion of Islam by the sword, by terror. That's not Christianity. So, and again, I haven't read these, these books that have come out on Christian nationalism. I do plan to do that. I just didn't want to do it really before this series and talking to you about these things because this national religion has been on my mind for over, over 10 years. So it just means there's an open acknowledgement of Christ, their submission to his, his uh, lordship. There's nothing that offends him openly offensive to him. That means we would have to repent of our, our homosexuality We'd have to repent of those things. We would have to certainly um, address all of all that flows out of that. And and at the end of the day, since the government has an invested interest in public religion, they would certainly support the uh, open profession of faith in that in that land. Right now, you're you can be punished. You know. For you could be labeled, you know, right wing, you know, for being a openly um, emboldened Christian. You could be just you're a terrorist. Oh, you're on a watch list, and that that's ungodly, and we would be against that. So, um, that being said. I'm going to read from Romans 13 just to set the stage because it is a proof text of that the Westminster Confession uses and you can find that in your hymnal on page 684 if you want to open your hymnal and follow along uh, you are free to do that so let me read from Romans 13 every person who is to be every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Now, verse 2 is also a rule that I was using even this morning talking about the apostles. Now, this is in a civil sense, but also in ecclesiastical sense. If you oppose those legitimate authorities, even in an ecclesiastical sense, who are you opposing? God, okay, so keep show, you know, 
make sure you make those connections. Verse three, for rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good and you will have praise from the same for it is the minister of God to you for good. If you do what is evil, be afraid for it does not bear the sword for nothing for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Now, I wanna, I'm gonna read um, just to show you this is continuity and just to show you that this isn't just something that Westminster invented. I'm gonna read from the Belgic Confession, which is 100 years before the Westminster Confession. The Belgic Confession was the confession to the Netherlands in 1561. It was adopted by 1571 through the Reformed Synod of the Netherlands there. And so it's a prominent confession of faith among Reformed people. Again, almost a, a hundred years exact to the Westminster Confession of Faith. And when I read the articles here, you're gonna see that the Westminster divines weren't, they weren't making anything up. They were very consistent with the normal hermeneutic and understanding of scripture. Okay, so listen to these articles. They're, they're small, there's not, they're very brief. This is chapter 36, or article 36 of the magistrate, civil government. Here's what it says, quote, we believe that our gracious God, because of the depravity of mankind, has appointed kings, princes, and magistrates, willing that the world should be governed by certain laws and policies to the end that the dissolutionness of men might be restrained, their sinfulness, and all things carried on among them with good order and decency. So you see right there in that first article, it speaks of the depravity of man needing governing. And that the civil magistrate, this is flowing out of Romans 13, for the good, for the constraint. I mean, even good people can do bad things, right? Good moral people can make very bad decisions on emotions and if there were no constraints to give them pause could make some very bad decisions that affect a lot of people but when there is order and decency and there's government and there's constraints given what we we do we think twice about doing some of those things okay that's that's a good thing Article two or 36 paragraph two says, their office is not only to be to have regard unto the watch and the welfare of the civil state, but also to protect the sacred ministry that the kingdom of Christ may thus be promoted. That was the third order. That was my third point about Christian nationalism that I gave you. They, they should advocate and be perfectly fine with what? The advancing of the gospel in the public square. Paragraph three. Moreover, it is the bounded duty of everyone of whatever state, quality or condition he may be to subject themselves to the magistrates, to pay tribute, 
to show due honor and respect them and to obey them in all things which are not repugnant to the word of God, to supplicate for them in their prayers that God may rule and guide them in all their ways and that they may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and gravity. We read from that scripture in Timothy that we are to pray for what purpose? That we may lead a peaceful and tranquil life. We shouldn't, we don't want to be at odds. We don't want to be fearful that we're going to get a knock on the door because we're Christians or because we have, we are advocating for uh, uh, the, the removing of the homosexual agenda from the government and public square. We shouldn't be afraid of those things, but so we pray that our government would would conform to these moral standards and standards that are good for um, everyone. It's not, and I mean everyone, I mean even the person that has these perverse proclivities. um, It's a good thing not to be able to exercise them, whether they like it or not, okay? Um, They can, you know, and again, we gotta be careful because many Christians fall into that you know, that pitfall of saying, well, if it's good for you and you can do what you want to do, it's, they think it's good for them, they ought to be able to do what they want to do. No, not really, not when it comes to breaking God's moral law. This isn't about my standard versus your standard. This is about God's standard and us conforming to it and us advocating that in a social setting, others conform to it as well for the good of all people. It's really that simple. Last paragraph. And they make some bold claims here or some bold statements. He says, wherefore we detest, that's a strong word, we detest the Anabaptists and their seditious people and in general all those who reject the higher powers and magistrates and would pervert justice, introduce community of goods and confound the decency and good order which God has established among men. Now, why did they mention the Anabaptists? And, and before you, mentioning the Anabaptists is not them saying that they detest these Baptists down the road here. That's not the same. The Anabaptists were a very unique heresy. I mean, they would literally strip their clothes off and run down the street naked, claiming there's no constraints among men. They were, they, they didn't believe, they, again, they had a weird eschatology. They did not believe, they believed civil government was evil and there shouldn't be any constraints whatsoever. And so they would do these wild actions. They would perform these wild acts in order to demonstrate that they were free. See, that they couldn't be constrained. And they caused a ton of problems for magistrates because it was just a, you know, I mean, imagine, right? It's the same thing going on in our own land, right? You, sh- you know, again, all of, there's, there's a lot of um, discussion right online right now about all people trying to do their shopping and whatnot and, and being bombarded by these people running in and, and, and grabbing stuff off the shelves and running out the door, you know? But we shouldn't have to worry about violence. 
You should be able to go out in public and do your business without the, about harassment and being uh, possibly violated or offended in some physical way. So the point of reading from the Belgic Confession is that this, what we have been, what I've been setting before you over these last several weeks, it's the Christian, it's the biblical and Christian worldview of civil magistrate. And it is very, it's, a, it's very unfortunate and it's very sad that we live in a day and time where most Christians don't believe these things. And it's largely in part due to sinful nature. We don't like authority in general. And it's due in part to the subversive doctrine of dispensationalism that come into the church over about 120, 30 years ago that created a, a that drove a wedge between um, the, you know, secular life and the spiritual life. And it did, a, it did a fantastic job in just taking the Bible and chopping it up into a bunch of parts. And, and, and the church lost the connections. You know, I'm always making connections. I'm always trying to show you how one thing's connected to another. And the reason for that is because of a doctrine of Scripture. It's the whole counsel of God's word, right? It, the whole thing needs to make sense. We, we typically understand the parts because we know the whole. Knowing the whole is vital to knowing the parts, right? You're going to learn that in, in Corinthians as we begin to go through there. There's going to be several texts of scripture that we're going to come to and everybody's going to go, well, what does it say, pastor? And I'm going to go, well, let's back up and look at the whole counsel of God's word. And if it's true over here, then we need to interpret this in a way that it doesn't violate this. So we're going to learn these things. Let me give you a little precursor like long hair. We're going to learn something about that. I'm not saying anything else about it. But what we have to do is we have to, we have to know the whole to understand the parts. And the parts are never to violate the whole. Okay? And that's one thing that our forefathers, our, particularly our Reformed fathers, were experts at. They had such a grasp on the whole that they handled the parts in just in a masterful way. And so what we do is we dissect everything. And we don't, we don't look for relationships. You know, one, you know we, we handle something. We want it to, we, you know, that's how heresy comes into the church, head coverings. That's how heresy slips into the church. Well, because we don't handle the part with the whole, Okay. And it could be the same thing. And let me just say this. It's like baptism. Okay? Even though baptism is a, a sacrament that Christians can be divided over. But my point is always this. We don't learn about baptism solely from the New Testament. <laughs> And where do most people that want to talk about baptism begin? In the New Testament. We have to back up, look at the whole, and then become and address the parts. And if we do that, 
we will, uh, won't be perfect because none of us are perfect, but we will stand on solid ground, okay? So, now with this being said, we already addressed, number one, the divine origin of civil magistrate. We know that it comes from God. Secondly, it's perfectly fine biblically that Christians can participate in the office of the civil magistrate. In fact, it's warranted and if not um, needed, right? Then thirdly, we have to understand that there are, there are uh, jurisdictions that the civil magistrate is to stay out of. He doesn't have uh, what we might call carte blanche uh, authority as per se um, in the church. He's civil, public. He is of the public square where the ministers of God are to handle and address uh, church matters, spiritual matters, if you will. Spirit in the sense of, well, breathe the Holy Spirit-empowered ministry of the word and the gospel. The confession is very clear that the civil magistrate has no role in the church as far as authority, and ministerial authority. Obviously, if, if one church member kills another church member or violates another church member, civil magistrate has authority in that matter for civil punishment. But we're talking about civil, um, we're talking about spiritual, or we're talking about the ministry here, and the civil magistrate has no authority when it comes to ministerial um, authority. And here's what it says. It says, the civil magistrate may not assume to himself the administration of the word, that is the preaching of the gospel, or sacraments, or the power of the keys of the kingdom of heaven. The power of the keys is a reference to church discipline. Uh, the civil magistrate could not come to the session and say, I want that person. That person spoke out against me. That person... Uh, uh, it needs to be excommunicated from the church. They have no authority to do that, okay? And um, so it, that's important distinction to make because what had the reformers experienced? The reformers had experienced kings involving themselves in the church. But listen, let's just not just accuse the kings the church was guilty of inserting itself in civil matters. Uh, the, the, church, the Catholic church was notorious for starting wars. Okay? That's, a, that's history. And so, you know, that is, we don't have, the ministers don't have the authority to go to the civil magistrate. So, oh, you will do this in the name of God. We don't have that authority. Okay? So there are jurisdictions and spheres of authority that each minister, whether it's a, minister, a civil minister or a, a, an ecclesiastical minister, they, they stay within those jurisdictions. Um, looking for... You think about 
the Old Testament. You can look in 2 Chronicles 26, verse 18. Um, Uzziah the king uh, burned incense unto the Lord, but the priests, the sons of Aaron, that are consecrated to burn incense, go out of the sanctuary, for thou hast trespassed. For neither shall it be for thine honor or for the Lord. So here you have, who, was, who were the ones that were ordained to light and burn incense in the sanctuary? The priests. The king was not allowed to go in there and do it because he was the king. And when he did, he was punished for it. Okay. So there's biblical precedent that there should be no intermingling of jurisdiction there's another king that's not in the proof text, but proves the point. And you remember Saul, remember Samuel. Remember when they had won the battle, what was, what was Saul told to do? Wait upon the Lord, wait upon Samuel. Samuel had tarried, Saul was impatient, and he offered sacrifices on the altar. And God judged him for it. In fact, Samuel, when he gets there, they're just wrapping up the sacrifices. And Samuel says, what is this thing you have done? What is this offense you have done? And he talks about now God is going to take the kingdom away from you. That's how offensive it was. God was offended that this person who was not called, right? And that's a portion, that's a whole point. The point of this, remember Remember even the Apostle Paul. Did the Apostle Paul take the ministry of Apostle uh, to himself? Was he, was he autocratic in it? Like, I'm just going to be an apostle. I want to be an apostle. No, he was called to it. And so the civil magistrate, these kings or governors or whatever, they're not called to that office and therefore they have no authority in this jurisdiction. And the confession is clear about this and this is important because there ought to be no intermingling of jurisdictions, whether it be the civil magistrate is to handle civil matters and the ecclesiastical ministers are to handle church matters. Now the second clause he goes on, he says, yet he has the authority and it is his duty to take order that unity and peace be preserved in the church and that the truth of God be kept pure and entire, that all blasphemies and heresies be suppressed, all corruptions and abuses and worship and discipline uh, prevented or reformed, and all ordinances of God duly settled, administer, administrated, and observed. Now, this is what gets every, there are so many reformed ministers that say that we take that out. And you'll see there's a difference between confessions, the American confession and the original confession. I'm reading from the original confession. They don't like that. And um, I, I understand why. I think there's a, it's reasonable to understand why. Would you want, would you want President Biden installed, I'm sorry, I have to say that, uh, not elected, but installed. Um, would you want him or his appointed person to rule over the church? 
or to appoint and govern heresies and whatnot? I say, oh, absolutely not. I mean, but, but he's not the only tyrant that's ever, you know, been in office, is he? There have been lots of others, right? And the church has survived. Um, so it's acknowledging that the civil magistrate has what? Has an interest in church matters. Um, I don't know why this is surprising. That the civil magistrate has an interest in church, in, in, in spiritual matters, church master, in, in this public Christianity. And notice what it says, that it kept, that the, the government, civil magistrate, should want the church to be what? Whole and complete. Disciplined. I mean that the church is not just a, a running, the church isn't allowing people to just come in and church and just live any way they want to. That the civil magistrate would encourage the, the, the collective Christian groups to do what? Well, constantly reform themselves, constantly hold themselves accountable. Preach the word, have conferences on the word. Have conferences with ecclesiastical bodies and say, let's, let's study what the Bible says about immigration. What, is God's, what does God's word say about certain matters? What does God's word say uh, about uh, economy, economics? What does it say? What does it, how, how does the Bible speak to uh, or relate to um, the stewardship of the earth, that kind of thing. The civil magistrate would be well within their rights to say, let's conference these things. I would like to hear what the Bible says on these matters. And that's what this is speaking about. When, um, if the church began to, again, um, charismania. If the church began to adopt and practice wild things, you know, falling out in the spirit, collect, I mean, just things that the civil magistrate would have a, would, should, they'd say, listen, what are we doing here? This seems to be out of sorts with scripture. What is this new thing? They could do that. And see, most Christians, most ministers don't want that to happen. But again, we have to remember that the Westminster Confession of Faith was a, was a civil called body. The church didn't call the, civil, the Westminster Assembly, the civil magistrate called the Westminster Assembly to do what? Address three, primary, three primary, primarily problems in which was disunity. The kingdoms of uh, England, Scotland, and Ireland were divided. They wanted to unite the three kingdoms together. And how better to unite the people than through what? Religion, what we believe. So there was an economic problem sorted with it. They believed if they could combine the people together, that they could be sort of a one mindset in, in religion and worship, that they, could, they would have better commerce together. They would have be better relationships, which is reasonable, right? If we get along, guess what? We're probably going to work better together than if we don't like each other or if we're mortal enemies with one another. 
right? So, um, but they wanted to, number one, they wanted to strengthen the people. They, they wanted to do it religiously. They wanted to do it economically of sort. And they wanted to, they really did want to build a greater unified kingdom. And they really understood. And the church needed reforming. The church needed reforming because the church was in very bad shape, very bad shape. So they wanted to sort of, there were all these sort of groups reforming. And so they said, well, let's bring this together. And like you have the Belgic Confession 100 years earlier, and then you have the Westminster Confession, which is considered by many theologians and historians to be the greatest of all the Reformed Confessions. That's not my words, that's their words. So they are within their rights to call uh, meetings and conferences with ecclesiastical bodies. Um, it says to present, uh, to present at them and to provide that whatever, whatsoever transacted in them is according to the mind of God. I mean, again, a lot of people will certainly not like that because they say, well, look, now the civil magistrates getting involved in church matters. No, they're not. They're only involved in around the church and around the church is, is conferencing over, hey, are these biblical? Hey, are these ideas legit? Um, hey, what are you doing about this immorality that is springing up in the people? Let me give you an example. I'm gonna give you a good example. Drunkenness. Public drunkenness has been a problem in the church. It was a problem back in the Reformation, days of the Reformation, public drunkenness. And so, again, the civil magistrate, it, what happens when people get drunk in public? They do stupid things, right? They tear property up. They cause damage uh, to other people, take lives. I mean, there's, again, it, it costs the public money when you have to put someone in jail and pay for them to be there. So it's not a good thing. It's a burden on the community. And so the civil magistrate would have be well within their right to go to these church leaders and says, hey, do you think you could step up the biblical teaching on drunkenness? That would be a little bit, that'd be a biblical way of handling it. Same thing with fornication and immorality. Hey, we have an epidemic here of, of, of children born out of wedlock. Can you step up the teaching here? Can we address this matter? Because again, here's another sin that has what? A lot of public welfare attached to it, right? Of course. And so when, look, when, when people don't take responsibility for their own actions, guess who's paying for it? Others. I think that's, I hope that, creates the, the point or helps drive that home. So, and then the last paragraph addresses our duty to those who are in the position of civil magistrates. And honestly, there's four things that the confession speaks to. One, that they be prayed for. And again, that we would use scripture. That doesn't mean we're overlooking their incompetence. It doesn't mean we overlook their criminal activity. It doesn't mean we ignore it. It doesn't mean we 
uh, forget about it. It just means we learn to pray for these magistrates. First of all, that God's will be done. And again, if they are not the minister that fits Romans 13, we pray for their removal of office. Why? Because we want to live tranquil and peaceful lives. We want to be able to believe and worship Christ. We want to be able to spread the gospel. We want to do all those things that we're commanded to do in Scripture without the interference or discouragement of the civil magistrate. Secondly, so we pray for them. So we pray that they would be the type of person in this office that legitimately is used for good. And again, if not, pray for their removal. Secondly, that we honor their persons as much as we can without lying. <laughs> without lying. Because number one, the Bible does not give the, the Bible doesn't give passes to scoundrels. Okay? There's no pass for a scoundrel, a criminal. In fact, in God's providence, it would be looked at if we have this land where we elect our officials and if we have, when you look at the degree and level of corruption that this country is under, that's nothing more than an indictment upon us as voters even though that is in question and has been for some time. It's an indictment because what do people put in, who do people put in office? People put in office people like them are people that protect their interests, their deviants. You know, you remember, I'll give you another example. Uh, you know, uh, unwarranted divorce is a something that the civil magistrate has a direct hand on, right? You know, they used to go to the civil magistrate and the civil magistrate would say, listen, uh, what, well, what was it? Remember, what year did the law, what year was the law of uncontested divorce? Now, I want you to think about what that did to this country. Uncontested divorce. For no reason whatsoever, just because you want to. I think it was, I want to say late 60s, but I may be wrong on that. But just that alone, that change in the law, look what it's done. Now, you think, look what it's done, not just to the church, but to taxpayers. Now, Tennessee, look, um, Adultery is so rampant. Adultery. Now that, that's, that's unfaithfulness of a spouse, someone who's married. It has become so epidemic that Tennessee just passed a law. Every birth has to have a DNA test. Why? Because adultery is so rampant Men and men raising children that are not theirs. That's, guys, y'all realize you're talking about immorality, depravity run amok. Tennessee's a conservative state. 
That's not California. But that's how far they've gone in adultery that now they are having to have DNA tests done on children of married couples to make sure that child belongs to the man. That's an embarrassment. But this is what we're talking about here. You say, hey, church, how about stepping up the talk? How about we do some more teaching on God's law and word on faithfulness, right? Would that be wrong? No, I don't think it would be wrong at all. So they honor their purses, pay proper tribute, obviously uh, taxes that are uh, more, again, what was it? I think somebody did some math. How much trillions of dollars are collected or, you know, look how much money they take and now we're still in debt. How can you just, you know, the average, the average American family, the average American paying taxes, working to pay taxes, and yet the government, again, the government can manage hardly anything. Why? Because they're never held accountable. They're never held accountable. That's a major issue when you talk about, you know, um, what was it Ronald Reagan said? Some of the worst, most terrifying words you could ever hear is I'm the, with the government and I'm here to help. Here's the problem though. The reason that has become true is because you never hold them accountable for anything. If you started taxing, if you started punishing them and taking their paycheck for some of these decisions, I promise you they'd be better decisions made. I mean, we, so there's got to be a system of checks and balances that, well, there is a system of checks and balances. You have to use it. And then, so we should have no problem paying what we might call normal taxes and tributes. That's fine. We're not, a, Christians are not opposed or shouldn't be opposed to taxation. We certainly ought to be opposed to the income tax because that's ungodly to tax someone's work versus other taxes. Um, and then lastly, number four, obey their lawful commands. So whenever they give us um, a commandment that is not offensive to scripture, that upholds the light of nature, we should be willing to do it. And are conscious bound to do it actually, because as Paul says in Romans 13, to disobey them is to disobey God. And of course that can open up a whole, uh, a whole host of questions that you might have. And I would be willing to take some of those now. So let's go ahead and close this portion with prayer and then we'll have a question and answer together. Let's pray. And Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look at these, the look at the Belgic Confession, but particularly even the Westminster Confession to see how biblical it is. Help us to conform to it. Help us to uh, relate to it. Help us to make application of it in our lives and help us to support it with sound and reasonable arguments, Lord, as we have discussions among ourselves and others. 
And Lord, we know that there's great reformation needed in our own land. And we pray that, and we know the only answer is your word. And so we pray that you would not only raise up from among our, ourselves, but from among the church, apologists and, and men, and Lord, those capable of answering these questions and, and leading, uh, Lord, a nation worthy, worthy of following. Lord, raise these people up for Christ's sake, we pray. And for the peace and tranquility of your church, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.